Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club of California. A conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the 40th anniversary of the 1973 oil crisis. Our guests are former Secretary of State George Shultz and former CIA Director James Woolsey. In October 1973, OPEC announced an embargo on oil exports to the United States in retaliation for American support of Israel during the Yom Kippur War. The use of oil as a weapon sent shivers through the global economy and plunged the United States into recession. The federal government rationed gasoline, and motorists across the country waited in long lines to fill up their tanks. Over the next hour, we'll look back at the 1973 oil crisis and look forward at the future of oil in the age of climate disruption. Our conversation will include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us two American statesmen. George Shultz was Secretary of the Treasury under President Nixon and Secretary of State in the Reagan administration. James Woolsey was Director of the CIA under President Clinton and Under Secretary of the Navy in the Carter administration. Please welcome them to the Commonwealth Club of California. <laughs> Secretary Shultz, Mr. Woolsey, thank you for coming. Uh, George Shultz, let's begin with you. 1973, or, or with the beginning of the oil embargo, you were in the Nixon administration. Tell us that story. How did that unfold? I was Secretary of Labor in 1969. And for some reason, the president assigned me the task of chairing a cabinet task force on the oil import program. President Eisenhower had thought that if we imported more than 20% of the oil we used, we were asking for trouble in national security terms. So we had a quota system, and we were coming up against it. So I had this. It was interesting. Secretary of Labor has a task force with the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense. I had all these big guys not exactly working for me, but uh, in my task force. And we managed to get a really brilliant staff and produce an excellent report that was published and we said, this was 1969, that the problem wasn't so much a military problem as it was the instability in the Middle East produced by the tensions between Israel and the Arabs. 
That was the issue. And so we said we should restrict our imports from that part of the world. We should put have some storage facilities so that we had some backup. It was obvious, it seemed obvious to us that there were resources up to the north of us and they should be looked at. So all these things we recommended. The president patted me on the head, sent a good report. We had hearings, but nothing was done. Nothing. So I learned a lesson. It's very hard to get anything to happen just on the basis of your, uh, your analysis of something, it's even though, when it seems perfectly obvious. But also had in my task force staff people who came to it because they were interested in environmental issues and so on. And I got so I knew a little bit about that. So a little while later, I'm the first director of the Office of Management and Budget. And President Nixon signed the legislation that created the EPA. And when a new agency is created, they have nobody to represent them. And they are going to get facilities from other places and people from other places and so on. If nobody represents them, they're going to get a bad deal. So the director of OMB becomes the representative. We're a pretty good representative because we know where the bodies are buried and nobody wants to mess with the OMB. So I had in creating the EPA, and I've watched it over the years. And it seems to me it has proven itself as a very useful nag to keep after us. And we have better, cleaner air, cleaner water. You would much rather breathe the air in any American city than breathe it in Beijing. Thank you, EPA. So then I become Secretary of the Treasury, and as you said, on comes the Arab oil embargo. And there's no energy department, so the Secretary of Treasury becomes the de facto Secretary of Energy. I might say in our report, we had said, you know, somebody should be paying attention to this subject, uh, and they ought to have something created to do that. At any rate... <coughs> In that setting, things did start to happen. We did create a petroleum reserve. We changed the method of the quota to a tariff system. And um, we became more conscious of the issue. People would come in and tell me about ideas they had for alternative energy. And I thought they were interesting, but far away, but encouraged them. But then I saw when the crisis passed, everything stopped. It's hard to keep the momentum going without a crisis. So all of that I saw. And then if I could continue this story. A few years later, I'm Secretary of State. And as was referred to in the morning conversation, we had the ozone layer issue. And the bulk of scientists thought the ozone layer was depleting. And as of now, there were doubters. However, they all agreed that if it were to happen, it would be a catastrophe. So President Reagan 
said, you know, we better have an insurance policy. And we started to work. And the work was not make a pledge for how much you can do about the ozone layer. The work was, what can you do about it? Let's focus on practical things that somebody might actually do that will make a difference. And the outcome of that was the Montreal Protocol, which I think is the only environmental treaty that's really worked. And I think the lesson I draw from that is focus on things you can do rather than objectives you want to attain, and you're likely to get further. So that's what I've learned from my experiences in these various offices. Jim Woolsey, how would you uh, evaluate the American response to the oil shock of 1973? How did the U.S. deal with it? How did What lessons and what did it do well or not so well? Well, first of all, I think George is completely uh, right. Uh, and let me put a, a gloss on it that I think helps answer the question. Crises are not enough, whether they're potential crises or existing crises. People will ignore them after a little bit of time. Uh, we had a crisis 40 years ago, as George described. President Carter later did move to uh, a situation in which we got ourselves largely out of the business of using oil to produce electricity. We used to produce about 20% of our electricity from burning oil. Uh, we moved away from that because we had alternatives. Unfortunately, the alternative that was utilized most heavily at the time was moving toward coal. Uh, but we did move toward natural gas. To some extent, there were other ways to produce electricity than oil. So as that competition came into effect, uh, oil began to lose. And we went down from 20% to 1% of our electricity coming from oil. What made that possible was that there was a, there were realistic competitors to oil. Today, we may, different ones of us, be motivated by different crises. Uh, one, uh, uh, for example, is uh, the perpetual mess that is uh, the Middle East. And you can attend seminars and you can read books and so forth and a lot of things we really ought to do in order to avoid being uh, in the hands of the, the chaos of, uh, of the Middle East. And you can convince people of that and talk to them and write books, and after a while, they'll, they'll, some people will be persuaded. My estimate is you're going to have a substantial impact on something like 10, 15, 20 percent of the intelligent public. Or you can say the real crisis, forget about this politics stuff, the real crisis is climate change, we know it is happening. The results can be absolutely disastrous, and you can write books, and you can give speeches, and you can go to seminars, and something on the order of 10, 15, 20 percent people will say, hey, that's really a crisis. We ought to do something about that, and then the same sorts of things will happen that George described. I have a increasingly, uh, I think, uh, uh, attitude toward how to do something in these areas that starts with the uh, famous line, follow the money. You are not going to make a major change 
such as getting the United States out of the business of producing electricity by burning oil unless there's something that is technologically and financially better. Now, if we try today, whether because of national security, because of climate change, because of whatever, to operate without focusing on the money, we will lose. What we have come to over the course of the last uh, 15, 20, 25 years is the view that all we really have to do is change where the oil comes from. And if we are getting oil from a nice country like Canada or, or Norway, then probably things are not too bad. If we're getting from a country that uh, wishes us ill, like Iran or Venezuela, things are really bad. Uh, and so we are in a, a mode of thinking that if we, if we drill, maybe drill, and get the oil from the United States, and you can do it in a, a reasonable fashion ecologically, then that's so much better than getting it from some place else. But if you don't also look at the money, you will not get accomplished what you want to get accomplished. People talk about energy independence. Well, what they usually mean by that is energy autarky. They mean stay away from trade. Don't buy stuff overseas that you can produce here. But, you know, Thomas Jefferson did not draft the Declaration of Autarky. Uh, we are not about autarky. Trade is a very important part of what we do, including trade in hydrocarbons and oil. But what we have done by interpreting the, the, the notion of, of independence to mean get it domestically instead of importing it from someplace else, we've done virtually nothing successful in this way. Now, improved production of oil domestically, I think, is a good idea. Again, we do it in an ecologically sound fashion. Proves your balance of payments. Improves employment at uh, refineries in Texas. It, it's all good. But it's not the main thing. The main thing is the price and who controls the price. Look, Britain, in 2008, when oil hit $147 a barrel, was, quote, energy independent. Britain had all the oil that it needed for what it could use from the North Sea. Uh, it had coal. It had nuclear. Uh, it, natural gas. Britain could have seceded from the world markets, set itself up, and been energy independent. But what was oil going for in Britain in 08? $147 a barrel, just like it was every place else in the world. And Britain did not secede from the international trade of oil or anything else like that. What would make a difference? Suppose Britain or the United States had policies as sound as those of Brazil, China, and Israel, so that you could pull into a filling station and choose there what you wanted to drive on. You didn't have to get permission from any bureaucracy. You didn't have to get permission from a cartel like the one that runs the oil market now, OPEC. You just chose. 
and you drove off. In Brazil, it's ethanol because uh, sugar cane is great down there and it all fits. The Israelis are moving toward their second fuel being methanol with an M. In other words, uh, cleaning fluid, uh, uh, not, uh, not uh, 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 rot gut whiskey. Uh, the, those countries are starting to make it possible to pull into a filling station and decide what you want to buy. And what they are finding is that cleaning fluid, methanol with an M, is a good deal cheaper and seems to drive cars just as well as gasoline. And so in 20 of China's 27 provinces, they are moving rather decisively toward being able to choose at the pump. Follow the money. At some point, when somebody can do what we did with coal and oil in the late six, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, when they can when they can start shifting on grounds of price and the technology working, at that point we will win over oil, and I think not before. But, Jim, doesn't this say that actually the solution to our problems is easy? Mm -hmm. Just follow the insurance policy concept that Ronald Reagan used for the ozone layer. What are the insurance policies? They're pretty clear. Number one, let's have every new automobile produced in the United States be flex fuel, as Jim suggests. So you do that, you've made a step. It's not even very expensive to do that. Ninety bucks a car. Number two, let's maintain on a sustained basis the support for energy R&D that's been going on now for four or five years. Usually drops away when prices of natural gas or something go down. Let's not let that happen. Actually, the amount of federal money involved is peanuts. It's not even in the rounding error. So now we're running about $8 billion. It ought to get up to 12, 15. But it's also true, <clears throat> at least as I am familiar with what's going on at Stanford University at MIT, that this money attracts private money. And actually at MIT and Stanford, most of the support, the bulk of the support comes from private uh, parties or interested in finding out what's going on, and both those institutions welcome it because these are the people, if you come up with something, who know how to scale it and get it to market and make it useful. So keep that going. And then let's have a level, <clears throat> level playing field. So all forms of energy compete on an equal basis. Absolutely. Don't subsidize anybody, but everybody should bear their full cost. And carbon is a cost. So the forms of energy that produce it should be charged with the costs of what they are producing. My nomination would be a revenue-neutral carbon tax. And so you, may, you put people, this is not a subsidy to anybody, it's just creating a level playing field. So everybody competes on the same basis. And I try to make it revenue neutral so the people who don't want to raise taxes, I say, look, it doesn't raise money. It's not a tax. Come on. Um, let's go with it. 
So if you just do those three simple things, you're in business. On this anniversary of the oil embargo 40 years ago, having two guests here who've served in four presidential administrations, we put together a brief video that shows every president from Nixon to Obama talking about this. We'd like to show that, listen to this, and then we can uh, comment on it. The average American will consume as much energy in the next seven days as most other people in the world will consume in an entire year. And until we provide new sources of energy for tomorrow, we must be prepared to tighten our belts today. In the 1973 embargo helped to throw us into this recession. We cannot continue to depend on the price and supply whims of others. And our dependence on foreign oil will be stopped dead in its tracks right now. We will continue supportive research leading to development of new technologies and more independence from foreign oil. Before the Iraqi invasion, U.S. imports had risen to nearly 8 million barrels per day. And we'd moved in the wrong direction. And now we must act to correct that trend. I recommend that we adopt a BTU tax on the heat content of energy as the best way to provide us with revenue to lower the deficit because it also combats pollution, promotes energy efficiency, promotes the independence economically of this country. And here we have a serious problem. America is addicted to oil, which is often imported from unstable parts of the world. We have known for decades that our survival depends on finding new sources of energy. Yet we import more oil today than ever before. So a lot to react to there. The presidents from Nixon to Obama talking about foreign oil and energy independence. Uh, George Schultz, I'd like to ask you, President Clinton proposed essentially a carbon tax 20 years ago, hugely unpopular. His party suffered a, a big defeat. Uh, do you think the politics are now different? Would it, where would we be if that perhaps had been passed 20 years ago? I don't know, but I know from experience that opportunities come. You never quite know when. And if you're ready and you've got something there, you can take advantage of it. And if you're not ready, it goes and you never know. So I think it's good. And you find a, a lot of consensus among economists. I recognize we're not powerful. We're just thinkers. But a lot of consensus among economists that the right way to go about this is a carbon tax. That's following the money in a way. And it also is it's not as Jim was pointing out, it isn't simply um, producing our own oil or independence in that sense. The point is, use less of it, and then we're going to get somewhere. Well, President Nixon said we need to tighten our belts. Well, that's right, but, but the only thing that we've done about it is let the prices go up, and that cause, does, does cause people to use less of it and look for alternatives. So, Jim Woolsey, there's two ways to do this, to make dirty energy more expensive or make clean energy less expensive. Secretary Schultz is saying making brown more expensive or internalize the cost. What do you think? Well, I think things would move faster with George's idea of, uh, of a carbon tax, uh, and that would be fine with me. But if one looks at the continual resistance to added taxes and especially the circumstances we're in now, um, I think we've got to at least consider how you might accomplish this uh, without without the need for for an added tax. And 
one way to do it is simply to let the market work and to avoid uh, the not only subsidies for ethanol, but also the subsidies that have been in place for many decades for oil, such as the depletion allowance and the intangible drilling costs and so forth. Complete level playing field. Under those circumstances, we're in a new world over the course of the last five years to where we were before with respect to what energy costs. Because a um, marvelous uh, uh, oil man died just a few months ago in Texas. Uh, the uh, uh, same name as the senator, George, uh, uh, George Mitchell, uh, put for the first time together hydrofracturing and horizontal drilling. And as a result, natural gas today in the United States is one-fifth the price of oil per BTU. What that means is if you're going to make a chemical out of natural gas, if you were going to do it five, ten years ago, and compare it to making it out of oil, you're kind of using roughly the same priced feedstock. And furthermore, there's some things that are a little bit harder to do with natural gas. But if fracking has produced a situation where you are not, you have a separate pot of feedstock and it costs one-fifth what oil does, you can make not anything exotic. You can make something like methanol, which is half of the cleaning fluid in your windshield wipers. Uh, uh, it's just, you know, I'm, methanol is in buck ten a gallon at the local hardware store. Uh, runs, cars run on it fine. It's uh, the, uh, the Indianapolis 500 has uh, uh, run on methanol for a long time. Uh, if you have something that wins on price in today's market, wouldn't win as well as if we had a carbon tax, but still wins about two-thirds the price per mile for methanol compared to gasoline. Oh, by the way, gasoline, what the oil companies did for us when they got rid of lead to get the lead, the carcinogenic lead, out of gasoline, they substituted for it carcinogenic benzene, toluene, and xylene. So we come up with a new way to give ourselves cancer from the fuel that we drive on. So you have some added benefits by moving away from gasoline and towards something simple like, like methanol, wood alcohol, made out of natural gas. Once you've done that, you've, you've taken a big step, not as full as you would if you also had a carbon tax, but you've, you've taken a big step toward making it possible for people to drive at less cost, about two-thirds of the cost per mile, that you have with, uh, uh, with uh, today's gasoline. And that is not a small matter. If you're just joining us on the radio, Jim Woolsey is former director of the CIA. Our other guest today at the Commonwealth Club is George Schultz, former U.S. Secretary of State. I'm Greg Dalton. Secretary Schultz, how would hydraulic fracturing for natural gas affect the geopolitics of oil and the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Well, we're producing more natural, more hydrocarbons here in a large way, including oil as well as gas. But this technique that Jim described is applicable elsewhere, not just here. And I think one of the most intriguing 
places is China. Because China has shale deposits that exceed ours, as I've been told. And they think they're inaccessible. Well, ours was thought to be inaccessible until this entrepreneurial guy, George Mitchell, came along and figured out how to do it. It's interesting that these innovations usually come from little guys who are entrepreneurial and driven rather than the big fellows. So I think we ought to go to China and say, hey, we'll make a deal with you. Let's let some of our entrepreneurial guys come over and join some of your little guys and see if we can't figure out how to put that shale to use. China's oil industry is dominated by three big companies, and just like here, the big companies, with all due respect, they don't do these kind of things. So let's see if we couldn't get China to develop its shale. And if so, all of a sudden, their demand elsewhere will go down. They'll make a big contribution if they have a lot more natural gas to use instead of coal, following the money, as Jim says. Get that substitution. You'll have a big impact on the greenhouse gas business and uh, begin to get somewhere. I'd like to shift to the consequences of burning fossil fuels, the, the climate consequences. Uh, Secretary Schultz, is climate change real? Are humans contributing uh, to it? Well, I think so. There is all this science that people talk about and report on that personally I think is impressive. But if you don't like the science, use your eyes. A new ocean is being created in the Arctic. That hasn't happened since the last ice age. Something's going on. So I think it's pretty clear that the climate is changing. It's and there are all sorts of indications, but that's a dramatic one. And there's something else about that. There's a video I've seen that shows the disappearance of sea ice in the Arctic. And it goes along very gradually. Then about 10 years ago, it takes off. There's a discontinuity. And the thing they have to worry about are the discontinuities. And there are all sorts of things you can point to as potential sources. So we are going along. It's very gentle, and you hardly notice it. But all of a sudden, you may hear something may happen that uh, brings us um, sharply into a different kind of era. So I believe that we should be coming back to that. We should be taking out a strong insurance policy. And as we pointed out, it's not even that expensive. Flex fuel vehicles doesn't cost anything much. Keep the R&D going strongly. Put a revenue-neutral carbon tax, so it isn't even a tax. It doesn't take any money. And let these entrepreneurial people get around. And you'll, following the money, people doing what makes sense, you'll get somewhere. But the, that view is not widely held in the Republican Party. What, what's a scenario for the Republican Party to get on board with the things you just said? Well, let me point out to you that it was a Republican president that created the EPA. It was a Republican president that did the Montreal Protocol. It was a Republican president that did the cap-and-trade system that dealt with acid rain. So we're the party that has done something. 
And having been involved in some of those things, I might say they were never done on a partisan basis. They were always done on a reach out and let's do this together basis. So I think there's the fundamental thing wrong in our country these days is that everything has to be done on a basis where you blame the other guy for something or other. And I'm sick of it, frankly. I read an article in, in, uh, in Politico recently that said, uh, looking for uh, uh, Rob Portman of climate. Rob Portman was a, is, is a Republican senator from Ohio, came out in favor of gay marriage at a time that it was very unpopular in his party. He has a gay son, but he came out and he saw the way things were going. Is there a potential for a Rob Portman on climate to come out and say, look, this is the way the party should go? I think what... What you have to do is to say, following the line of reasoning that Jim said, follow the money, also follow security. We've got to find things that improve our security, make economic sense, and deal with this climate issue together. And those things can be found by the sort of things that we're talking about. I might say, in addition to sort of the broad security in the international sense, I think we're very vulnerable in this country because our grid is so vulnerable. We've seen that when we have natural disasters such as Sandy. But you listen to these people who know something about cyber matters, which I've been doing lately, and they scare the daylights out of it because they it's pretty easy to disrupt our grid. So you better have energy created where you use it. And there are all kinds of ways of getting at that if we will get at it. So I'm a believer that um, we should identify problems and start doing something about them, not talking about them. Jim Woolsey, you have an example of grid vulnerability I'd like you to talk about in San Jose that happened that hasn't received very much attention. Well, uh, you can have a very vulnerable electric grid for a number of causes, but one that happened illustratively, uh, just outside San Jose back last spring, the, the day after, actually, the uh, bomb uh, uh, detonation in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the day of the, the uh, marathon. Um, this was captured, most of it, by um, by film at, uh, at a area where there were some 20 relatively large uh, uh, transformers. Uh supplying much of the electricity for Silicon Valley. Uh, there is a video of uh, uh, a group of three or four men uh, driving up in the middle of the night at two or three in the morning, uh, having a tool with them that helped them lift a very heavy 250-pound or so manhole cover off to go, several of them, two of them anyway, went down into uh, where all the wiring uh, was and clipped all of the wires that would make possible 911 uh, calls, uh, at least on the, on the land uh, lines, um, uh, deployed with AK-47s, several of them, and lined up in a disciplined way and began systematically shooting the uh, transformer fans. Now, they were did not have... Uh, I suppose armor-piercing rounds, and so they were not shooting the transformers themselves. That would take a transformer out for many months. They shot the fans, 
which um, took them out for some period of time. And from what I hear, they got 17 of the 20. Um, then an outlook that they had posted in a very disciplined military fashion uh, saw that a car was coming, maybe somebody who had called on a cell phone because he heard gunshots. Uh, they quickly and professionally disposed of everything they, they had except the, uh, threw it in the car that was with them uh, uh, and uh, uh, except the, uh, the brass, which they left, which is how people knew it was they were using AK-47s. They uh, uh, disposed of that uh, except for the brass. They got everything with them, got in the car, got away before the, um, I believe it was the highway patrol uh, vehicle showed up. The people in the vehicle didn't know anything about transformers or what, if it meant anything that there were pools of, of oil and so forth around them. And uh, so they just went away. And then a few hours later, the electricity was not fully coming as much as it should. And some representatives from the company, uh, from the utility, came back, saw what had happened, called it in. People looked at it, stirred around. There was one very small story in the um, um, San Jose paper. Uh, uh, the uh, state police or the FBI, one of the two, said that they thought it was just hooliganism. Uh, the sheriff, a woman of uh, the San Jose area, said this wasn't hooliganism. This was a systematic attempt to take down the electric grid. Um, of Silicon Valley, which would have huge right. economic impact. It, 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 and they, if they had, were only shooting the fans, they, they, they might be able to get back up relatively quickly. Had they been shooting the, the transformers themselves, it could be months. Uh, something very similar to this happened in Arkansas a couple of times uh, during August. And uh, I, there's been, I think, an arrest of at least one individual involved. If you jump from that to... Uh, Solar coronal ejections, they're caused, or huge sunstorms, uh, sometimes called Carrington events because named after a scientist. Uh, but the point is that those can take out huge sections of the grid, and not with anybody planning it, just with a basically a gigantic sunspot. Uh, so there are the grid is very vulnerable. It's vulnerable to malicious, and it's vulnerable to, to uh, chaos, and we have not done anything useful to protect it or make it hardier or more resilient, really, ever. From, from the early, from the mid to late 19th century, when the grid started being put together in the 1880s, uh, until today, um, we have basically sort of looked at the problem and wrung our hands. And somebody said, would say, why don't the utilities fix it? Well, the deputy director of ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy in the Energy Department, told me the other day that of the, for the 3,500 American utilities, they spend less each year on research and development than the American dog food industry spends on R&D. One other vulnerability is uh, of, of climate impacts is immigration. I'd like to talk a little bit about how immigration and displacement of people could affect the United States along the border. Um, Jim Woolsey. Oh, yeah, one of the 
really troubling situations, I think, is the glaciers in the Andes. Uh, and uh, once you uh, start uh, seeing uh, those melting as, as they have sporadically uh, over the course of the last several years, uh, you have a situation uh, in which uh, hungry and thirsty neighbors uh, south of us uh, could uh, need, feel a perfectly reasonable need to come north to find food and water. And if we think we have political and economic difficulties figuring out how to deal with the immigration issues now, uh, uh, just wait until the uh, uh, situation in the, the glaciers in the Andes, which is where people in that part of the world get most of their fresh water, is uh, rather uh, very troubling. Secretary Schultz? I'd like to make a comment that's not on that exactly, but on the immigration issue that we have right now. If you look at fertility in Mexico, it goes like this. Downward. Very sharply. So that now fertility in Mexico is down to replacement level and probably go a little below. Mexico, if they are successful in the kind of energy reform they're talking about, is going to wind up having a very strong economy. It shouldn't be surprising that the net immigration of Mexicans to the last year was zero. Actually, more U.S. went to Mexico than the other way around. So we are worrying about the wrong border. We would want to Canadianize the Mexican border. The border we should be worrying about, including what you were talking, is Mexico's southern border. Call it the southern border of North America and help Mexico avoid becoming a transit country with all of the human degradation and corruption that goes with that. So in Washington, you know, they don't get it. They're worrying about the wrong border. They're putting up big things and so on and uh, to keep Mexicans out. We'll be pleading for You know, 70% of the people who work on U.S. farms are immigrants. If we didn't have them, we'd be starving. Give me a break. George Schultz is former U.S. Secretary of State. And our other guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Jim Woolsey, former CIA director. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, U.S. and China emit most of the greenhouse gases in the world, 30, 40 percent. Secretary Schultz, could you came or you were very active in the bilateral talks with the Soviet Union, did a lot of things. Could the U.S. and China get together in a bilateral way and solve uh, the climate carbon problem in a way that the U.S. and Russians did during the Reagan administration other periods? Well, I think the way to get at the carbon problem is not the way we're doing it, but to do along the lines you're suggesting. We ought to identify things you can do, actually do, that make sense. And then we should work with China. Say, well, here's what we're going to do. How about you? I mentioned the example earlier of helping China develop its shale so it has more natural gas. That would be a very helpful thing. But there's this huge amount of research going on. Solar panels are very competitive right now, and China's producing them and using them. But they're very competitive, and it's also true that a big fraction of the cost are installation costs. 
So I say to these scientists, why don't you design something that's a little easier to install? You knock the daylights out of the costs. So things are becoming economic. Batteries are getting better and better. And there's a scientist down at Stanford that thinks he has figured out, is getting toward improving the capability of a lithium-ion battery maybe by four or five times. And if he can pull that off, think of what that does to the range of an electric car. So these are things you can do. On the question of energy created where you use it, there's a company down in Silicon Valley that's figured out how you configure fuel cells into a size like the size of a pickup truck. Put natural gas over it, you produce electricity. You can park it anywhere. And I keep telling them, you ought to think about hydrogen because there are scientists working to figure out how you get the hydrogen out of water inexpensively. And then if you put hydrogen over your fuel cell, you not only get electricity, you get potable water, which is handy in many cases. So I just think there are lots of things that are being produced that you can actually do. And rather than have our objective is to reduce greenhouse gases by X percent, let's say our objective is to put into effect A, B, C, D, and then things will start to happen. How many electric cars do you own? How many electric cars do you own? Two. What are they? Well, they're both Nissan Leafs, and I I have one down at Stanford. I have electric uh, panels on the roof of my house down at Stanford. I put them in about six years ago. If I did it today, I'd get much better ones. But anyway, if I compare my electricity bill before and after, I've more way saved all the money that it cost me to put them in. And I'm driving my electric car. I produce way more solar electricity than I use in the car. So I'm driving on sunshine. And guess what? It's free. And there's plenty of it. And and my wife has one up here in San Francisco. And she drives it around the hills of San Francisco. And um, where the electricity comes from, it's not like the solar I have down there. But anyway... It's a great car. comes from fog. Jim Woolsey, you also are electric. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, in this, as in many things, uh, following uh, George uh, uh, Schultz is a, is a very uh, very good idea. Uh, Sue and I have uh, a Volt uh, and also a Prius that has added a 5-kilowatt-hour battery added to it. It gets about 20 miles all electric. The Volt gets 35 to 40. Um, we have a geothermal heat pump uh, in the house. We have wind power down at the dock to raise and lower our boats. Uh, and uh, um, we uh, uh, have uh, solar on the roof and batteries in the basement. Not a bad standard of living. Two cars, a boat. What's the roof? Not the light. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, go to audience questions. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. A question for uh, George Schultz or Jim Woolsey. Good afternoon. Dave Masson, Citizens Climate Lobby. Speak up. I can't hear you. Ah. Dave Masson, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Secretary Schultz, um, we are lobbying Congress for a revenue-neutral carbon tax, and we really appreciate your talking about it. I'd like to follow up on a question that Greg asked you about how to get Republicans in Congress on board with this idea, and I'd like to ask you, um, about a piece of our campaign logic, and that is. Ask me about what campaign logic? Oh. 
We are thinking that as the president comes out with more and more direct regulations from the EPA, because Congress has failed to act, which he has threatened to do, and he did do last June with the new coal plant regulations, that more and more regulations, which Republicans really don't like, would encourage Republicans to think about a market-based carbon tax. Do you think that's a good piece of campaign logic for us? Is there a, a political opening for a carbon tax with so much regulation going on? My experience in government is that if you say to the Congress, look, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to do it anyway, you lose. Congress has the power of the purse. They can cut, they can shut down the EPA tomorrow. Don't have to shut down the whole government to do it either. So the way to get something done is to reach out to people and include people. And I might just go back to my Ronald Reagan insurance policy approach. We said to the people who were doubters about the ozone layer, okay, we respect your point of view, but you also agree that it would be a catastrophe that's happened. So let's agree on an insurance policy. Reach out, include people. Now, on the revenue neutral carbon tax, uh, what may happen, I don't know, but one of these days we'll get tax reform. Everybody agrees it's overdue and needed. So sooner or later, they'll get around to it. And in that context, you just might be able to get something, particularly if you stick with the idea of having it revenue neutral so it isn't uh, a drag on the economy. So I say be ready, be watching for opportunities, and... uh, Maybe we'll get somewhere. But I don't think the the bludgeon of regulation taken against the Congress's wishes is likely to get you very far. We talked earlier about fuel competition in markets, particularly for transportation fuels. And one proposal that's been introduced is something called the open fuel standard, where there would need to be competition for fuels that go into an automobile. Republicans like markets, competition. Could that be something that would bring people together? Absolutely. Well, Jim has talked about this, the flex fuel vehicle, and I think there, there's a lot of support for that in the Congress on both sides of the aisle. We, we have Jim an organization that Bud McFarland and I started a couple of uh, years ago called the U.S. Energy Security Council, and its focus is very heavily, as does the Fuel Freedom Foundation, which we work with, uh, on uh, a flex fuel and making it possible in one of two ways to get flex fuel vehicles uh, without uh, having to uh, uh, order it done. Uh, one of the cleverest, I think, uh, uh, is that Gal Luft and Annie Corrin, who have written several very fine books on these subjects, uh, came up with which is instead of mandating that half of the cars or whatever have to be able to use, let's say, gasoline, ethanol, and methanol, say, all right, as long as you have more, if you have gasoline and ethanol being able to be used in a car, you've got at least one more fuel. But whether it's, whether it's methanol and electricity, what, as long as you've got multiple fuels, at least, at least three in one case and two otherwise, 
you um, get an added cafe credit for your fleet of vehicles. So if you're an American automobile producer and you're sitting there really worrying about how you're going to get to 40, 54 and a half miles per gallon cafe in the, the coming very few years, and you should be worried it, because it's not going to be easy at all to do, what you say is not car by car, but Mr. American manufacturer, if you will have half of your new vehicles flex fuel, we'll give you an added four miles per gallon for your entire fleet in CAFE credits. The CAFE works, this kind of an operation also works to clean up because methanol, for example, is much less carbon than, than uh, uh, gasoline. So you have... Uh, Credits that are going to improve the, eco- the ecology, and at the same time, you are creating competition between fuels so people can pick a cheaper one or pick whatever they want. And uh, I think there are different ways to do this, but uh, you're talking about to have a car that you make some kind of change to in the production process to let it drive on gasoline, ethanol, or methanol. The cost of that is $90 per car. That is half a seat belt. Are there oil companies fighting this? Humma, humma, humma. That's kind of what they say right now. Uh, A little hard to tell. Mm. (laughs) We'll see. We are hoping to to bring some of them along. We are starting to to work on this. But uh, I wouldn't say I could characterize them either as, as... Helpful or is fighting right now. I think they're trying to decide exactly how to deal with something. Car manufacturers, too. They won't fight you as long as they don't think you're going to get anywhere. That's right. That's right. Uh, But we're reaching out. (laughs) We're reaching out. (laughs) Let's have our next audience question for Jim Woolsey and George Schultz. Thank you very much for being here and for talking about some of the alternative uh, energies. Um, Since climate, uh, global warming is real, and oil, gas, and uh, coal, we know, are not good for the environment. Um, Do you think it's a good idea? You know, we hear more and more talk about getting oil and getting it here and drilling, but we have alternative methods, and we can create even others. There should be more effort, I think, you know, to get the alternative, to use the alternative things, because the the gas, coal, and oil just aren't good for humans. They're carcinogenic, and they kill animals, too. Thank you. Jim Wilsey, are we moving fast enough away from oil? No, I'd like to move faster away from oil. Uh, I think there's a big difference between natural gas on the one hand and oil and coal on the other. Coal is heavily carbon and, and is really bad for the environment. We're beginning to move away from it by EPA uh, uh, rulings uh, pushing us uh, more uh, uh, toward natural gas and in favor of closing down the coal plants and the... It's also following the money. Right, cheaper. following the money because the gas is so much cheaper. It's cheaper now than coal. So moving away from coal is, pretty, I think, pretty straightforward and desirable. Moving away from oil, for the reasons that we've both been talking about, I think is fairly straightforward and extremely desirable. But you've got to run on something, and, and as we're waiting for batteries to get to be good enough that we can utilize uh, renewables, 
rather than just on a sporadic basis because of their, uh, their, the fact that wind doesn't blow all the time, sun doesn't shine all the time. So you've got to have a base load for both electricity and, I think, something that you can, can, can utilize for, uh, for uh, vehicle transportation as well. I think if you do it right, that fracked natural gas can be done in an environmentally responsive manner. The main problem is the water that comes back up. And there are now at least several approaches toward dealing with the water and fracking uh, that at least I think are extremely promising. One is the water comes back up after you blast it into the shale. You dig a pool that is plastic lined, uh, like a big swimming pool, several million gallons. Uh, and then you treat that water with some new catalysts that are coming along and the rest, also some electricity in some circumstances, you clean the, the water up enough that it can be reused for another well. Because I was climbing around on fracking wells down in Louisiana a year or so ago. In a room this size, uh, there uh, were six fracking rigs, one there, one there, one there, one there, each one being able to drill down and out away from the, the package of rigs. But if you – one set of uh, – basically of water uh, doing – dealing with five or six or eight uh, uh, wells uh, is, is one way to get away from uh, the water problems with fracking. Another is something uh, called propulsion fracking, which is using um, uh, solid rocket fuel which doesn't explode, burns the, see the shuttle go up, it's solid rocket fuel. But it consumes what's necessary, it doesn't put extra water out, and it shakes up the shale enough to be able to get the, 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 the natural gas out. So I would suggest that it's worth very careful study to figure out how the environmentalists and the companies who work on fracking can work together and let us be able to use, I think, as an interim step, natural gas, both in gas to liquids for transportation and in uh, electricity. And then as time goes on and the batteries get better, we can make a transition, I think, from natural gas to renewables. But you can't have electricity and you can't have, I think, the right kinds of liquid fuels unless you work on the problem of natural gas. And I would count it very, very different than either oil or coal in its undesirability. I might say that Fred Krupp at the Environmental Defense Fund has been studying just this issue that you're talking about and trying to make a constructive contribution. Yeah, they're doing a very good job there. We're getting close to the end here. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. In a cap-and-trade system, where are the taxes going? Um, I don't see a clear plan on where that money would be invested. Bill Clinton said, well, can, it would go to lower the deficit. But, oh, in a cap-and-trade system, where would the tax money go? Where would it be invested? Bill Clinton said, oh, we could lower the deficit. But what about a plan to where it would go into, you know, developing solar industry? And also, solar is very toxic to produce the panels and technology to make it less toxic. Thank you. Where does revenue go from a tax or a cap-and-trade system? Where's the, following the money, where does the money go? Second In my source. system, it would go back to the populace. That is, set it up so that it all is administered, let's say, by the Social Security system. And it goes in equal 
proportion to every recipient of a Social Security check or everybody whose payroll pays a payroll tax. And you get a little check that says your carbon dividend. In my system, that's where it would go. I'm always afraid you say, okay, there's a pot that's going to get developed by this and we're going to spend it on X. That money's very fungible and it tends to sort of wither away and you don't know where it's going. British Columbia has a system like that that's working fairly well and their economy hasn't ta- tanked. And uh, yes, let's have our next audience question. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Okay, uh, my name is Gerald Harris and uh, we have two eminent people who have a lot of global experience. So my question is this war that's going on between the Sunnis and the Shia or Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, could have long-term impacts on the oil industry. Do you think it's just a matter of if they got the oil, they have to sell it, or is it more complicated than that? Who'd like to tackle that? Secretary Schultz? I couldn't hear the question. The question about the Sunni and Shia war, uh, Middle East conflict, and oil. Well, it seems to me you have to look out at the Middle East and say, it's pretty unstable. That's a source of oil. So be careful. You don't have to be a wizard to figure it out. It's vulnerable. So that only underlines the importance of using less of what they produce, of producing more of it here, and basically producing alternatives, just the sort of thing we've been talking about. I think George is exactly right. The reason oil doesn't sell for the $2 a barrel it did when I was growing up in Oklahoma and now sells for 103 or $4 a barrel is OPEC. It is a cartel nested inside a monopoly. Oil is 97% or so of the world's transportation, and OPEC owns about 78% of the oil, proven oil reserves in the world. So, and oil has a very inelastic demand. A lot of products, if you tax them, you, or you, you'll, you'll see the consumption go down. Oil is very inelastic. So what happens if you take a creative situation in which there is added demand or at, let's say added supply and you would think that that would make the price go down? It's not what happens. What happens is whatever the Saudi king and the UAE and the Venezuelan president and the others who run OPEC want to have happen. If they want to raise the price, they have a cartel. They can withhold from production and raise the price. And there are three very good authorities for the proposition that the most important thing that a government can do in economics is to break cartels. And those are, these are three really kind of left-wing Keynesians, uh, Milton Friedman, um, uh, Friedrich Hayek, uh, and uh, Adam Smith. So the message is learn the lesson of the 1973 embargo and use less of the stuff. Yep. We've come to the end of our time here. I want to end on, on a brief personal note. Thirty years ago, if I had gotten this close to a member of the Reagan administration or a director of the CIA, it would have been a different conversation. But uh, I was a client, uh, then an anti-apartheid activist, and I've learned a lot today. I want to thank you, Mr. Secretary, for uh, and Mr. Woolsey for for today for showing us how we how, what we have in common is a lot stronger than what divides us, and particularly uh, the conversation earlier 
with Paul Hawken and Andy Revkin. So thank you for the conversation today. Thanks to our audience here on the radio. And now this program of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is over.